Hello, this is Jimmy LaSalle, and welcome to another podcast for U.S. History Repeated. Today, we are going to be talking about immigration and the building of cities. But before we do that, I want to remind you of a couple of things. Please visit our website, ushistoryrepeated.com, and fill out one of the forms to submit your email address so you can find out all the latest and greatest from Jimmy and Gene. And now a quick word about our sponsors. This podcast is brought to you in part by Keen Insights Internet Services. That's K-E-E-N-I-N-S-I-T-E-S. Go see our friends at Keen Insights for all of your internet marketing needs. Next, EliteBookEdits.com. Writing, writing, wherever it's wrong. Go see our friends over at EliteBookEdits.com for all of your book editing needs, both fiction and nonfiction. Lastly, a little plug for myself. Immortals Revelations, now available for sale in Amazon and Kindle, as well as the naughty list. Immortals Revelations, about two vampires who want to reveal themselves to the world. They don't like that term, but then things start going wrong. And then the naughty list is a little fun Christmas romantic comedy. I hope you check it out and take a read. Post a review if you like it. Today, we're going to be talking about immigration and the growth of cities throughout the United States. Millions of immigrants came to the United States between 1870 and 1900. The majority of these immigrants came mostly from Northern European countries like England, Ireland, and Germany. These groups are often referred to as old immigrants. New immigrants consisted of groups from Southern and Eastern Europe. They spoke different languages and they had different religions. The influx of these new groups of people eventually gave way to anti-immigrant sentiments and nativist policies that led to the change of immigration laws in the 1920s. The majority of immigrants to the United States came through New York Harbor, at first through Castle Gardens and then Ellis Island once it was built in 1892. The Library of Congress has great resources on this and a wealth of primary source documents. The National Immigration Museum at Ellis Island and the Statue of Liberty are other great resources as well. The United States is a nation of immigrants. If you are not a Native American, you come from a family of immigrants. You see immigration increasing and decreasing throughout our country's history for a number of different reasons. You see a dislike of immigrants and growing anti-immigration sentiments throughout our country's history. And these anti-immigrant sentiments are aimed at different groups at different points in time for a variety of reasons. In the post-Revolutionary War era, you see some immigration. Immigration was slowed during the War of 1812. And after tensions decreased between the United States and Great Britain and France, you see immigration once again resume. You see a large influx of Asian immigrants once gold is discovered in the Western United States in the mid-1840s. Oh, hey, sorry to interrupt, but we did do a fantastic, fantastic podcast on the gold rush just recently. I highly encourage people to check it out. Sorry, Jeannie, back to you. Immigration from China and Japan was prohibited by the Chinese Exclusion Act and the Gentlemen's Agreement with Japan. The largest waves of immigration to the United States occurred between 1820 and 1900, and there were a variety of push and pull factors. The Industrial Revolution encouraged immigrants to come to the United States. Europe's lack of available land, land being passed down to only the eldest son, 
war, famine, religious persecution, and the notion of the American dream will all act as catalysts for immigration, not just from Northern European countries, but Southern Europe, Eastern Europe, and Asia as well. There were a number of different port of entries for immigrants coming into the United States. Some cities served as ports of entries for immigrants Um, cities such as Philadelphia, which had the country's oldest quarantine station. It was known as Lazaretto. It was named after St. Lazarus, the patron saint of lepers. Major cities such as Boston, Baltimore, um, New Orleans, and San Francisco, they all served as ports of entry. We will talk a bit more about Angel Island a little later on in the podcast. The most famous and most popular was New York Harbor. When people think of immigrants arriving in New York, they think of Ellis Island. But the first immigration processing center was at Castle Gardens, New York. From 1820 until about 1890, millions and millions of immigrants entered the United States through Castle Gardens. It was originally built as a fort to prevent a British land invasion in New York during the War of 1812. And over the years, Castle Gardens had a a number of different purposes. Uh, Today, it's where you can purchase tickets to see the Statue of Liberty. But it was once a theater. And um, interestingly, the site of the New York City Aquarium before it was relocated to Coney Island, New York. It is now known as Castle Clinton National Monument. There are really so many hidden gems that countless people must walk past every day never knowing or even fully realizing that perhaps, well, in this case, 130 years ago, but let's say 50 years ago or 25 years ago, the place where they were standing or maybe busily walk past every day at one time held a lot of significance. The New York Board of Emigration Commissioners established the Emigrant Landing Depot in 1855 at Castle Gardens, and this was utilized until the federal government took control of immigration. Up until then, individual states controlled immigration at their respective port of entries. The way the process used to work was that a health inspector would come aboard the ship and any passengers who were sick or who appeared to be ill were taken to quarantine on Staten Island. The quarantine hospitals on Staten Island were disliked by the residents, who blamed it for the spread of disease, especially yellow fever. Eventually, Staten Island residents took matters into their own hands and burned down the buildings. Some things, you know, don't change. If you know anything about Staten Island, that shouldn't surprise you. And for those of you who don't know what she's talking about, you just got to kind of know a guy, if you know what I'm saying. Immigrants needing to quarantine were then kept on board a floating hospital known as the Florence Nightingale. The Staten Island Museum has a lot of information about this if you're interested in learning more. Definitely go check them out if you're interested. Two artificial islands in New York Harbor near Staten Island were built in 1870 and 1873 for the use of quarantining sick or potentially exposed immigrants. You talk to most New Yorkers, especially those downstate in the five boroughs, and when asked, you know, what is Staten Island known for, most will say how Staten Island had the dump where the city brought its garbage for years. And at one time, it was the largest garbage dump in the world. 
In New York, many former landfills or dumps have now been turned into parks. So there is a history of Staten Island being used as a dumping ground, this point in time for sick people. Another interesting New York garbage fact, many parts of New York City or islands around New York City were built from putting garbage into the water. Ellis Island, Battery Park, the FDR Drive, Rikers Island, all of that excavated dirt and rock from building the subways or major construction projects, bam, we used it to enlarge the city's footprint. Now, getting back to the topic at hand, um, in order to afford to come to the United States, many people sold all that they had and able to be able to afford tickets in steerage, okay? So you're not even able to afford first class or second class. You're in steerage aboard immigrant ships. The journey was very long and very difficult. The ships were packed with people, all looking for a chance at a better life. You have these tight quarters and people packed in like sardines. It provided perfect conditions for disease to spread easily, especially diseases like yellow fever and cholera, which, if let loose in crowded city tenements, would quickly lead to outbreaks and epidemics. So the Swinburne and Hoffman Islands were built off of the coast of Staten Island. Swinburne had both a hospital and a crematorium, and Hoffman Island is where people were sent who were suspected of having been exposed to a disease and needed to be monitored before they could be safely processed and enter New York City. Today, those islands are used as bird sanctuaries. You can learn more about them by visiting the National Park Service website. The federal government took control over immigration processing as a result of a number of scandals and numerous instances of immigrants being taken advantage of. Agents from railroad companies often flooded docks with promises of opportunities in states out west that were abundant with land and job opportunities, and they often charged high rates for passage. Many Northwestern states in particular, printed pamphlets out in a variety of languages. They printed ads in European newspapers, advertising the promises of a better life out West. States and cities lost control over immigration to the federal government. The Immigration Act of 1891 gave the federal government the right to admit, inspect, and process all immigrants entering the United States. It required that all passengers provide biographical information to inspectors. It mandated that all passengers be given a medical exam to ensure that no one with a disease could enter the United States. The act also allowed for the deportation of immigrants and vessels had to transport individuals back at their own cost under penalty of a fine. This portion of the law made it less likely that vessels would knowingly allow sick people on board because they would then have to foot the bill for either their hospital stay or to be sent back to their country of origin. Laws were also passed that banned companies from advertising jobs to potential migrants as a reason for coming to America. So, you know, when people talk about how, oh, well, we didn't really limit immigration back then. Yes, they did. And they were very careful with how it was being done. The U.S. Barge Office was located near Battery Park in Manhattan, and it was used to process immigrants coming into the United States and New York from 1890 until 1892. And then 
It resumed it there from 1897 to 1900 after a fire destroyed the original wooden buildings at Ellis Island. The U.S. Office of Immigration opened on Ellis Island on January 1st, 1892. The first immigrant processed was a young 17-year-old girl from Ireland named Annie Moore, who was traveling with her two younger brothers. There is a statue of her likeness on Ellis Island, and if you ever go, try to find it and be sure to take a picture with it. It's important to note that the experience of immigrants at Ellis Island, they were not all the same. People who were able to afford first and second class passage were processed on board the ship and they didn't have to wait on those same lines as third class or steerage passengers had to wait on at Ellis Island. After weeks, maybe even months at sea and surviving the journey across the Atlantic, they were then sent to wait on lines to be processed. Immigrants were required to go through both a legal and a medical inspection. For physical inspections, doctors and nurses quickly worked to scan each man, woman, and child for signs of illness. Coughing, difficulty breathing, paleness. I mean, just consider paleness. You're below deck for weeks, seasick. I am pale and green after 10 minutes of being on a boat. Imagine what most people looked like after that type of a voyage. They took special precautions to make sure that no one with cholera, tuberculosis, or a disease of the eye known as trachoma made it through. Immigrants had to fill out multiple questions, which they were then questioned on upon their arrival. Questions ranged from simple things like their height, their weight, their age, their full name, their place of birth, occupation, current health status, how much money they had on them, Did they have any known relatives they were going to be living with in America? Did they have work lined up or did they need to look for work? Their language spoken and their religious beliefs. Inspectors made young children talk and walk and they checked for cognitive impairments. The point of all of this was that they didn't want to let anyone in that would potentially be a burden to the government. Health inspectors or doctors would use chalk marks to label those that required quarantine or a hospital stay. X was used for possible mental illness, PG for pregnant, SC if they had a scalp disease, P if it was something physical, just to give you an idea of some of the most common markings. Even healthy, able-bodied women who were unaccompanied by a man or who didn't have someone already in the country, were seen as someone who would be a burden to the state. How could they support themselves? We are still very much in a time where women could not get many jobs. Some factories hired women and young girls, but their wages were less than what a man would be paid. Today, in many industries, women are still paid less than men. If you were sick, Depending upon your illness, you were either sent back or you were told how long you would need to quarantine at their hospital or medical wards. What most immigrants recall the most about their journey to the United States was the sight of the Statue of Liberty welcoming them to the United States. This enduring symbol of freedom took nine years to build and it was given to the United States by the people of France to commemorate their alliance during the American Revolution. 
very few people know that the other important meaning behind the statue was to also celebrate the end of slavery in the United States. You know, when you said most people don't know, I totally thought you were going to say that there is a twin to the Statue of Liberty over in Paris, which I happen to see, but continue on. Sorry. There are broken shackles at the feet of Lady Liberty. If you have never noticed this part of the statue, be sure to Google an image of the Statue of Liberty's feet. The famous poem by activist and poet Emma Lazarus that is now at the base of the statue was written in 1883 for a festival to raise money for the cost of the pedestal of the statue. And that poem, it wasn't added until 1903. One of the most famous lines of that poem that people often quote, give me your tired, your poor, your hungry. Well, We wanted your tired, your poor, and your hungry because we needed cheap labor in our factories, and we weren't willing to admit any tired, poor, or hungry who were likely to be burdens to the states and cities where they would live, but we'll get more into that later. The actual name of the statue is Liberty Enlightening the World, and it serves as an enduring symbol of freedom. Its nickname, however is how most people refer to it, the Statue of Liberty. Now, on to Ellis Island. Ellis Island itself has a very interesting history. It was once privately owned by a merchant by the name of Samuel Ellis in the late 1700s, and it was purchased by the federal government in 1808 as a way to better defend the Port of New York. Again, in the build-up to the War of 1812, there was a fear that Great Britain would attempt a land invasion. So this is all happening at a time where conflicts between the United States, Great Britain, and France, they're starting to worsen, especially at sea. So later on in history, as the influx of immigrants increased in the late 1880s, the need for a space that could handle a larger number of people led the federal government to build a new processing facility on Ellis Island. The island size was increased by a number of acres over the years, some parts of the island landing in New Jersey, some in New York. The federal government built a number of buildings along with the immigration center, such as a hospital and a detention center, and unfortunately, all of them were made of wood. And in June of 1897, a fire just ravaged the immigration center, and it destroyed not only the buildings, but all of the immigration records as well. The federal government quickly set out to rebuild the center at Ellis Island, but this time the buildings would be fireproof. They also increased the size of Ellis Island. Islands two and three were built to house additional facilities, a large hospital, contagious disease wards, and understand that the hospital at Ellis Island was a teaching hospital. It was a place where doctors wanted to work. And if you think about it, they had the opportunity to learn firsthand about practically every disease on the planet and learn how to treat those diseases or practice how to treat those diseases. The treatment was not free. You had to pay or you had to find someone who was willing to pay for your treatment or you were deported. There were even instances of steamship companies being given hospital bills for patients. 
This served as a lesson to those companies not to allow passage to individuals that were carrying diseases. Otherwise, you're going to foot the bill. There was an autopsy room on Ellis Island that had observation seating. There was a morgue. There was a ward for those with mental illness. There was a playground for the children. You know, don't forget if somebody is sick and you have children, well, where are they going to go? They had to stay back. There was a laundry building. I mean, think of what needed to be washed and sanitized daily. You're talking probably thousands of sheets and linens. Overall, about 30 buildings on this area of Ellis Island were built. Today, the majority of those buildings on islands two and three have been abandoned. And they are actually available for limited hard hat tours. I encourage you to go to saveellisisland.org to learn more or to donate or to plan a visit. Visiting the restored areas of Ellis Island are really something special. Having the opportunity to take a tour of Islands 2 and 3 is really a a once-in-a-lifetime experience. I would love to tour them again. There's something about walking around the hallways and seeing this once booming place that's really been forgotten by time and imagining all the people who were kept there. For some people, Ellis Island was a beacon of hope. For others, it was a prison. They could see New York, but they weren't permitted to step foot out into mainstream society. In the 1920s, when immigration to the United States was limited by the quota system, Ellis Island became more of a detention center. And during World War II, it was used by the military. In fact, all of Ellis Island, after it closed in the 1950s, was in essence left to rot. And it wasn't until the 1970s that the work to restore and preserve Ellis Island began. And the museum, as it is now, only opened in 1990. So it's relatively new still. Now that we know a little bit about where they were processed, I want to get into a bit more detail about what the process was like. Well, let's hold that thought. I think um, this is enough time for this particular podcast and we do try to keep them down. So why don't we continue that with the very next podcast and we'll pick it up from there. Thanks for listening to U.S. History Repeated. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Parlor. Visit our website, ushistoryrepeated.com, and subscribe to our podcast. There's always more to learn. Talk to you soon.